A reading from Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Uh, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through the faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Check, check. Is this on? Last time I forgot to turn this on. Good. Good. All right. Well, thank you, Justin, for reading that. Before we hop into our text this morning, uh, I want you all to go back in time with me to 1989. Uh, Kids, it's it's the 1900s. It's kind of a long time ago. Um, so someone is working in a university admissions office. They pull out an application that was just sent in from a potential future student. They start reading through it. Many of you are familiar with these applications. They ask questions. You give short answers. You might have answered even a question like this on your own. Are there any significant experiences you have had or accomplishments you have realized that have helped to define you as a person. Here is what that university admissions worker read. I am a dynamic figure, often seen scaling walls and crushing ice. I have been known to remodel train stations on my lunch breaks, making them more efficient in the area of heat retention. I write award-winning operas. I can pilot bicycles up severe inclines with incredible speed, and I cook 30-minute brownies in 20 minutes. Using only a rake and a large glass of water, I once single-handedly defended a small village in the Amazon basin from a horde of ferocious army ants. I also play bluegrass cello. I was scouted by the Mets, and I am the subject of numerous documentaries. 
Critics worldwide swoon over my original line of corduroy evening wear. I don't perspire. I am a private citizen, yet I receive fan mail. I bat 400. My deft floral arrangements have earned me fame in international botany circles. That one's my favorite. I once read Paradise Lost, Moby Dick, and David Copperfield in one day and still had time to refurbish my entire dining room that evening. I know the exact location of every food item in the supermarket. I have performed several covert operations for the CIA. The laws of physics do not apply to me. On weekends, to let off steam, I participate in full-contact origami. Years ago, I discovered the meaning of life, but forgot to write it down. I breed prize-winning clams. I have won bullfights in San Juan, cliff diving competitions in Sri Lanka, and spelling bees at the Kremlin. I have played Hamlet, performed open-heart surgery, and I have spoken with Elvis, but I have not yet gone to college. That was written by a man named Hugh Gallagher. Many of you have probably heard that before. I read a shortened version for the sake of time. He wrote it for a National Scholastic Writing Contest in 1990, which he won. But in follow-up interviews and online comments over the years, he admitted that the year before, in 89, before he submitted it to the contest, he indeed put that answer on several college applications. Now, I couldn't find if he got admitted to any of those colleges, But I'm sure that made for some great laughs in the admission offices. Well, in a way, Paul gives his own answer to that application question in this morning's text. But as citizens of heaven, what are the most important things for us to gauge as believers? How do we track progress? We'll talk about that, but first, join me in prayer. Father, I ask that through your spirit and word, you bless us with the glory of your truth and love. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, my name is Jeff Harding. I'm the youth minister. This is your first time here with us. And we have been going through Philippians in a series titled Citizens of Heaven. Paul was writing this during his house arrest in Rome. He's been talking about... uh, Humility and unity for the sake of the gospel. And this morning, we get to chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Now, if you look in your Bibles, this passage begins with the word, finally. As Phil pointed out last week, we are just now past the halfway point of this book. And Paul starts out with, finally? When I read that during my sermon prep, I got the answer that I've been wondering my entire life. I now realize that there have been so many preachers who have looked at this passage in Philippians and said, Aha! See? Paul said finally when he was nowhere close to being done. That's exactly what I'm going to do. And finally... So Paul actually says it again in chapter 4, verse 8. This leads commentators to think that in context, chapter 3 might have originally been an aside that Paul ended up including in this letter because he saw how it built on the themes of rivalry and humility that he mentions earlier in his letter. All right, so verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. 
So not just in this letter, but in previous conversations or even other writings with the Philippian church, Paul has conveyed these same sentiments to them before. I don't know about you, sometimes it takes me hearing things multiple times for it to click. Verse 2, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. I was once leading a youth guy's small group, and a student, now this was long before I worked here, so no, it's not Billy, but I had a student who emphasized to the rest of the group that things were hard for early Christians. I agreed, and he expounded on that point by saying, we could have had it really bad. We could have had evil men with big dogs trying to attack us. I winced and looked at him and said, that's oddly specific. Where did you get that? And he pointed to this verse. As I told those students, uh, context is important because verse 3 gives us our answer. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul is saying that those who have trusted Christ, who have been sealed with the Holy Spirit, possess the indicator of the new covenant. The Judaizers who stress that works and tradition need to be, they are mandatory, along with faith in Christ, were upset that the church refused to acknowledge the Old Testament marker of the covenant of circumcision as necessary. And that's when my small group of guys realized that if they had a choice of being persecuted for their faith, they would take the evil men with the big dogs. Uh, Paul's terminology here is ironically stinging because Jews often called Gentiles, especially Samaritans, dogs. So he's specifically referencing slander they often heard used to describe them, to describe the people who are trying to disrupt their community and add to the work of Christ. Now we get to verse 4, verses 4 through 6. Here comes Paul's answer to that application question. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, blameless. I was the man, is basically what Paul is saying here. If you wanted a resume as a first century Jew, it doesn't get better and Paul's. We'll come back to this section in a bit, but let's continue for now. Verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Here's here's where Paul builds on the either-or statement he gives back in Philippians 1.21. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. In this temporal life, we have nothing to gain if we already have Christ. The Judaizers insisted that works and effort plus faith in Christ gives us salvation. They failed to see that Jesus plus nothing gives us everything. In case it didn't come across yet, in verse 7, Paul continues by strongly emphasizing his point. Verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. 
Well, Paul truly expresses how he feels about his own accomplishments or anyone else's in light of gaining Christ. The most charitable definition of that word rubbish, skubalon in Greek, is bottom of the barrel refuse. The more common definition is dung or manure. I think that gets his point across pretty clearly. So I guess if we're to be true to scripture, all of our resumes under job history and accomplishments should just say a load of manure. That would probably make us pretty hireable, right? How could they not hire you? Continuing from verse 8 into verse 9, in order that I may gain Christ, verse 9, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Right here, Paul helps us shed light on perhaps the most important part of that list of accomplishments and status he lists earlier. What did he already say about his own righteousness? He said, righteousness under the law, blameless. You couldn't question it. Even if someone was to keep all 613 commandments of the Mosaic law, really can't do that, but in case they could, they need to see the main point, the underlying point of the Sermon on the Mount Jesus gives, where he expresses and demonstrates that the law is not sufficient. It can't encompass the entirety of how we live. And so we need something better. Him, he's the finisher of the law. He says in the beginning, right after the Beatitudes, don't do away with the law, but here is what you still have to learn and know. In John fourteen six, he says, no one comes to the Father, in fact, except through me. So the only righteousness that matters, Paul says, is found in Christ and comes from dependence on him by faith in him. That's not only confusing to the world, but it's offensive. One reason it's offensive to the world is on us as believers, but I'll get to that in a second. The first reason it's offensive is why I think Paul preceded his boast of lawful righteousness with how he treated followers of Jesus in the first place. Look at the beginning of verse 6 in your Bibles. Almost every major Bible translation, whatever you're looking at, ESV, NIV, King James, New King James, New Living, Holman Christian Standard, New Revised Standard, New American Standard, all of them have those three words, zeal, persecutor or persecuted, and church. So when we look at the original language of Scripture and try to decipher its meaning, there is zero confusion about what Paul was saying here. It's bad enough that they follow this Jesus who they think is a prophesied Messiah, but they disregard everything God told us we needed to do to be good enough, to be clean, to be righteous, so we can approach him without inciting his wrath. How could they not think, I can attain my own righteousness? The church should not be known as a bunch of righteous people. We need to eradicate all of the picket signs, crowdsourced petitions, and angry sermons from the pulpit or news interview chair American evangelicals might be known for. And in the spirit of persecutors like Paul, berate how wrong and sinful the culture is or everyone else is, and end up touting a list of our own, a Christian of Christians, as to theology perfect, as to zeal able to acutely answer people online why they're wrong. 
As to political affiliation, blameless. You can see where that trail leads. And I myself certainly get caught up in that, although mine would be different. Mine would also add, as to normalcy, willing to play a mystery blender game with teenagers at 3 a.m. So, you know, as my students would say, weird flex, but okay. Instead of the constant culture war tactics, here is the public message that the church should have from each of us. I am unrighteous. I am righteousless. I try my best to love God, to honor Him, to love others, to help the poor, help the oppressed, help those who face injustice, but I haven't earned one iota of righteousness. Yet I am loved beyond measure by the Creator of the universe, and so are you. Let me tell you why as I tell you about Him. But brothers and sisters, we cannot save anyone, let alone shame them into the love of Christ. The Father draws people to himself, and in faith we respond by trusting his presence and his word, and as Henry Nouwen would put it, he uses sinful, rebellious people to help sinful and rebellious people. We can't fight fire with fire. As citizens of heaven, we are working within an economy of holiness on a timeline of eternity. We have to see the big picture and approach it as one. Whether it's the pace of the business world or the polarization that we see online, we can easily fall into the trap of sacrificing our witness, the future of our witness, on the altar of the immediate. On a hill not the least worthy of dying on. We have to see and live in the big picture. Anything from us is temporal and second-rate. Anything from God is eternal and priceless. If you must fight with someone, fight for them to see their worth. I promise that will change the dialogue for the better. And yes, I realize that in First and Second Corinthians, Paul tells the church a reference to Jeremiah 9 that if we must boast, let's boast in the Lord. Well, boasting for us as citizens of heaven means recognizing and thanking God for what he did. And if we mention ourselves at all, it's to say how grateful we are that we got to participate in that or be used by him for our good and his glory. Trinity Fellowship Church, a a bunch of broken, flawed, unrighteous people who are worth more than you can imagine, who are loved and made in the image of the God of the universe, Come and join us. We're going to hang that new banner on the roof over here off Greenville after the service. So if you could stay and help us hang that, we would appreciate it. All right, so that second part, the second reason why that concept of righteousness not earned is offensive to the world and is on us as believers. Unfortunately, the misunderstood message that far too many believe they have heard from Christians is that righteousness is synonymous with worth with the right to be loved, treasured, valued, accepted, or welcomed. And that's a travesty. Here's the truth. It doesn't matter who they are, where they come from, what they look like, what they believe about anyone or anything, what they have done or what they will ever do. They are loved more than we can fathom. Just sit with that 
for a moment. If we think that's obvious to anyone who has entered a church or interacted with Christians, we need to think again. Now, should we go beyond that and tell them about repenting and faith and those elements that are necessary? Yes, of course, but it has to start with us acknowledging their worth, with us acknowledging our worth because they don't believe it or they don't know it. And to be honest, sometimes we don't either. When our students go out to Hidden Acres in the summer in East Texas and work with refugee kids, we never lead with sin. We don't even mention it the entire first day, ever. You know what we lead with? God loves you. You were made in his image. You were made for a purpose. You are loved no matter what. Now those children, many of them experience hardship, suffering, even abuse on a regular basis. So it's all the more critical to remind them of what they're worth. But friends, we cannot leave that as an approach just for the marginalized and the suffering. It needs to be the approach of the church toward everyone, period. Paul ends this section by stating what his overall goal is and what ours should be. Verses 10 and 11. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and that by any means possible I may attain resurrection from the dead. So what does that look like for us? As citizens of heaven, what's the application? What's the takeaway? If our relational currency, as it were, is not based on birthright, education, status, or accomplishment, how do we remember that? What do we walk away from? Well, first of all, we have to remember and live in that big picture. God loves you. You were made in his image. You were made and created to love him, to be thankful for him, to live in community with him and one another. He deemed you worth the life of his son, the son, the king of kings, the lord of lords, the instrument through which he created everything. Yes, God deserves our love, our faith, and our devotion. But his love for us is the purest form of unconditional love. No matter what we do or believe about him or anything, we are loved. Anyone that we interact with for any reason, they are loved. That has to be on the forefront of our minds every waking moment. Secondly, if our typical measuring standard is, well, rubbish, according to Paul, then what's needed? How do we hold up what's needed as the indicator that we are sealed with the Spirit? Paul gives some examples later in Philippians. Uh, He says to focus on what's pure and lovely, but mainly he encourages them to walk with him, imitate him, and walk accordingly with their faith. So here, I think it's helpful to see what he told the Galatians. In Galatians 5, he said, If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Let's gauge our own walk with Christ and relationship with others, especially fellow believers, by that list instead. Let's not measure it as a resume or a list of nutrition facts, making sure everyone has the right percentage of fill in our own quality or opinion. 
20 years ago this past January, our church men's retreat actually talked about that. I found this in the church kitchen by happenstance uh, this past week. Uh, it's from January 2001, men's retreat. The theme was character counts and recounts. That's because this was shortly after the 2000 presidential election. Kids, if you thought this past election was contentious, woo, go home and ask your parents what a hanging chad is. Uh, but on this mug, on the ballot, it has the fruit of the Spirit. That's what counts. That's what matters. <clears throat> the fruit of the Spirit. Character. Not forgetting the greatest commandment when we approach the Great Commission. We teach those lessons to our children through Bible stories, through worship songs, through missionary testimonies. We encourage our students to answer the ongoing question of who am I with their identity in Christ and to be known for that more than anything else. And parents, I'm right there with you. Uh, Our son will be two next month, and as much as we celebrate his ability to climb big playgrounds or sing songs now, I'm sure I'll be the parent who's doing cartwheels in the stands whenever he does anything well. I'll probably also be that obtuse parent who's arguing with the coach at the most crucial t-ball game of the season. But you know what's more important for us to make sure of than our kids being the captain of the team, member of all the clubs, top of the class, the number of college acceptance letters they get in the mail, anything they accomplish, or them agreeing with everything we say? If none of that was on the table, we would still have the most important things to guide them in as parents. Does my child love well? Does he care for others well? Does she put others before herself? Does he admit when he is wrong? Does she experience joy? What does he know about Jesus? Does she know her worth? And parents, you can't just tell them, or it won't work, or it won't last. It has to be modeled. As Caitlin, the speaker for our senior girls' graduation team, reminded us, God never called us to be successful. God called us to be faithful. My challenge to you for this week is simple. Put a post-it note on your bathroom mirror, on your dashboard, on your computer monitor. Schedule an alert to pop up on your phone, or better yet, have someone else do that for you. Maybe even change the background on your phone uh, with these two things. First, you can put, remember the big picture, or you are loved, to remember God's love for us, our worth, everyone else's worth that you engage with. And the second part you can put is, fruit is greater than rubbish. And you have freedom in Christ to put whatever you want for the term rubbish. If we are not of this world, then neither should our approaches and measurements be, even while we are in the world, seeking Christ, the power of his resurrection, and awaiting our own. What righteous pursuit is your loving creator calling you to lay down in faith in front of him this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you immensely. There's no way we can thank you enough for your love, for creating us, for us being created so we can enjoy you. And what 
often ends up being well-intentioned ignorance. We miss the point. We miss the main thing, and we do so when we interact with others. Lord, we ask for forgiveness. Please put us back on track. Help us to be a good model for our children, for our friends, for our family, for those who do not know Christ, who are looking at us and wondering, what is the church all about? What do they actually represent and believe? We ask that you would just constantly be at the front of our minds with with reminding us how much we are worth no matter what we have done. And to just be thankful and to share that amazing good news with anyone else that we might meet. In Jesus' name, amen.